you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to take them and turn with me to Luke chapter 6. The Gospel according to Luke chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 12 to 16. Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 16. And I ask that you follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 12 of Luke 6. In these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night He continued in prayer to God. And when day came, He called His disciples and chose from them twelve, whom He named apostles. Simon, whom He named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts and minds as we consider God's word together. Let's pray. Father, we do confess to you that You are the only true God, and You have revealed Yourself finally and savingly in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that that revelation, Father, is Your Word to us in the Old and New Testaments, and that when we come together to study the Bible, we are hearing the Word of God, the truth of God, given to us without error, Father, for our good, for our eternal good, in fact, in the Lord Jesus Christ for those who believe. And so we do pray, God, that You would work faith in our hearts today that You would encourage those who are believers, Father, and build them up in the faith, that You would save the lost, God, by Your grace, that You would work by Your Holy Spirit even now. God, we know and we believe that nothing that happens today uh, happens at chance or at random, but that in eternity past, You, God the Father, determined to fulfill a course of ministry that You gave to Your Son, who completed it and now applies that finished work through His Holy Spirit. And so we acknowledge, God, that we come now into your presence with hope and with confidence, trusting that you, the triune God, will do what you have determined to do for your glory and for the good of the Lord Jesus' people. So please keep me from error, Father. Please give us hearts that would be ready to believe and obey what it is that you have revealed in your word. And so we ask for grace even now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, earlier in the service, we We both uh, sang and confessed together some truth from the Apostles' Creed. Uh, As Baptists, we believe that Scripture alone is authoritative for the life of the church. And the Apostles' Creed, which we read, is certainly not on par with the Bible. And yet, while we affirm the sole primacy of Scripture, we also recognize that the Creed is a clear and ancient summary of the truth that Scripture teaches. This is important, friends. Sometimes as the church, we use non-Bible words to protect and preserve and clarify Bible words. Right? So the creed is a clear and ancient summary of the truth that the Scripture teaches. That's why we occasionally read from the creed together. I would read from it every Sunday, but that would probably get old. Um, I, I think it's a wonderful, clear summary of the faith. 
That's why we read from it occasionally. Not because we believe that the the creed is inspired, but rather because we believe that the creed faithfully summarizes the faith once for all delivered to the saints. This is very instructive, friends. Christians of different denominations may disagree, and in many ways rightfully so, on various issues and practices, but all believers across time and space are united in our confession of the truth that is summarized in the Apostles' Creed. You cannot be a Christian unless you believe these things to be true. But that church-wide affirmation of the Creed raises an interesting question that connects with Luke chapter 6 today. At least I think it's an interesting question. The question is this. Why is that confession of faith called the Apostles' Creed? The Apostles didn't write it actually. So why is it called the Apostles' Creed? Why not the Gospel Creed? Why not the Christian Creed? Why not the Church's Creed? Why the Apostles' Creed? Well, the answer, friends, takes us to our passage here in Luke chapter 6, where we find one of the four New Testament lists of the twelve apostles. And as we study this passage today, perhaps the most important point for us to note is the connection between the apostles and the Lord Jesus Himself. That's really the key to this text. The connection between the twelve and the Lord Jesus. You see, the apostles are not significant because of who they are. We're going to see that they're actually rather ordinary men. No, the apostles are significant because of who they represent. The Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the only reason we know about the apostles is because Jesus chose them and appointed them and sent them to be His messengers. It's not the apostles that are significant, it's the Lord. And the reason we know them is because Jesus appointed them to be His witnesses. And witness is the key term. Witness is the reason why we call it the Apostles' Creed. These twelve men were authorized messengers. They were the authorized messengers to whom the Lord Jesus entrusted the testimony of His life and ministry. The apostles were not called to be many kings of the church. And they were certainly not called to pass on some sort of Uh, mystical, spiritual power to their successors that came after them. No, the apostles were witnesses. And according to the New Testament, they were the witnesses. The eyewitnesses of Christ's life and ministry. Think about that, friends. These twelve men saw the Lord's baptism. They saw Him walk on water. They saw Him break the loaves. They saw Him teach the Sermon on the Mount. They saw Him take up His cross and go to Golgotha. They witnessed His resurrection. They saw His body raised from the dead. And then most importantly, they preached what they saw. They witnessed, they saw, and then they preached what they saw. They preached the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, beginning first in Jerusalem and then spreading out over the known world. But at the heart of this apostolic ministry was always this focus on the Lord Jesus Himself. There was always this focus of passing on what they had seen, what they had witnessed, what they were commissioned and sent out to declare. And that's what I want to stress to us this morning. We should care about the apostles and their ministry because we care about the ministry and authority of Jesus Christ. Or to say it another way, we should seek to follow the apostles because they communicate to us the true gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we should pay attention to these 12 men and to this text. It's the connection between the 12 and the Lord Jesus that's most significant. And so, with that connection in mind, what I want to do this morning is 
study this passage about the apostles in order to note three truths about the Lord Jesus. (laughs) It's a passage about the apostles, and I want to draw your attention to Jesus through them. Three truths, in fact, and in the end, my hope is that these truths will increase our confidence in the testimony that the apostles have given to us. So, three truths about the Lord Jesus from the twelve apostles. The first is found in verse 12, where we see the humility of the Lord. The humility of the Lord. You may remember in the course of Luke's Gospel that Jesus has just endured a series of conflicts. It started back in chapter 5 as the religious leaders doubted Jesus' claims to authority. It then continued as those same religious leaders began to dog Jesus' disciples with questions. And then it reached something of a climax in verse 11 that we looked at last week in chapter 6 where the religious leaders decided that they needed to deal with Jesus. And by deal with Him, they meant kill Him. So by the time you get to verse 12 here in our text, we know that things are intense for the Lord Jesus Christ. The doubts have turned into questions. The questions have become opposition. And the opposition is now trending in a lethal direction. Jesus faces intense conflict. And that's what makes verse 12 so instructive. In the face of rising opposition, notice what Jesus does. He prays, verse 12. In these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray. And all night, He continued in prayer to God. Friends, this is actually a consistent theme of Jesus' ministry, all at the key moments in Luke's Gospel, all throughout Luke's Gospel, we find Jesus praying to His Father. It happened at Jesus' baptism, Luke chapter 3. It happened at the outset of Jesus' ministry, Luke chapter 5. It happens in this text. It'll happen in Luke chapter 9 at the transfiguration. It'll happen most significantly of all in Luke 22 when Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. You see, time and time again, When the intensity or the significance of ministry begins to rise, what do we find the Lord of glory doing? Not boasting. Not serving in His own strength. Not blasting His opponents. Not despairing. We find the Lord praying. Praying to His Father. Humbling Himself in prayer. Now, I'll be the first to admit to you that the Trinitarian reality of the Son praying to the Father, stretches my understanding. (laughs) I'm not really sure how this works. Why does the Son, who fully shares the Father's nature, need to pray at all? Or, how does prayer even work within the triune Godhead? The Father and Son have been united for all eternity, so how does one pray to the other? I don't know exactly. But that shouldn't stop us from marveling at the Son's humility and at His example. Even though He is God in the flesh, the Lord Jesus humbles Himself before the Father in prayer. Think about this. Even though at this very moment in Luke 6, Jesus is holding all things together, He still displays the humility of depending on God. Brothers and sisters, this is the man who receives heaven's praises in Revelation chapter 5. This is the Son of God who has no beginning and no end. This is the the promised Deliverer who fulfills every single hope of redemption for the people of God. This is that man. And yet, even still, this man Jesus prays. He humbles Himself in prayer. You see, this is part of the glory of the Son of God, friends. Jesus is so strong 
He's so majestic. He's so mighty. He's so glorious that He can gladly bow before God to pray. That's true strength, friends. That's true spiritual strength. True spiritual strength is not the ability to endure everything on your own. It's the willingness to depend upon God alone. You want to know what it looks like to be a strong believer? Look at the Lord Jesus who's on His face in prayer all night. It's because He's so mighty that He prays. And that's the example that the Lord Jesus sets for us here. We may not understand completely how such humility works between the eternal Son of God and His only begotten the eternal Father and His only begotten Son, but we, that shouldn't stop us from marveling at the Son's humility as He prays here on the mountain. And so, brothers and sisters, this may sound simple to you, but I hope that you don't dismiss it because it sounds simple. If the Lord Jesus' life was marked by such humble prayer, then how much more should our lives be marked by the same? Listen, I know that Jesus' mission was not primarily to set an example for how you and I ought to live. His primary mission was to shed His blood on the cross and rise from the dead for the salvation of His people. His primary mission was to save. I know that. And yet, that doesn't exclude the reality that the Lord Jesus did often set the example for how we ought to live. 1 Peter 2.21 For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you what? An example that you might follow in His footsteps. Or 1 John 2.6, whoever says he abides in the Son ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. How did he walk? In humility of prayer. So before we even get to the apostles, we haven't even gotten to the twelve yet, before we even get to the apostles, we should pay attention to the Lord. And specifically, we should pay attention to His humility in prayer. So let me just remind you, friends, what prayer is. In times of trouble, prayer is a divinely given means of strength and support. In times of uncertainty, prayer is a God-ordained means of giving you insight. In times of struggle, prayer is one of God's precious remedies to strengthen your faith. That's not to say that one moment of prayer automatically solves every problem. As Luke's Gospel shows us, Jesus prayed in an ongoing way. But that is the example here. Jesus prayed and He kept praying. He prayed consistently. And His example calls us to do the same. You know, there was a a wise older saint who once described his prayer life with the word labor. Labor. This brother prayed pretty richly, pretty faithfully, and yet he described his prayer life as laboring in prayer. I find that very helpful. There's a workmanlike quality to prayer. There's a workmanlike quality to a rich prayer life. The individual moments may not feel like much, but you know what? Most individual work days don't feel like much, do they? But what do you do? You get up, you punch in, you keep working. The same thing in prayer. You get up and you keep praying. Right? There's a workmanlike quality to it. And maybe that will help you this morning, brothers and sisters. Listen, most Christians, myself included, most Christians have a far too mystical view of prayer. But when you listen to the saints of old who were really rich in prayer, what you find is not tales of mystical insight, but rather testimony of faithful labor. 
faithful work. You pray and you keep praying. And you do it all as an expression of humility before God. The Christian who labors in prayer is a Christian whose life exudes humility. I'm not sufficient for this, God. I need your grace. I need your wisdom. Would you provide what I need? So, once again, before we even get to the apostles, we should note the humility of the Lord Jesus as He prays. And from His example, friends, we should be encouraged to press on with the labor of humbling ourselves before God as well. It's not mystical insight that we need. It's just faithful labor as Christians, trusting that God will hear us when we pray. So that's the first thing we should note from this text about the Lord Jesus. We should note His humility. The second truth about Jesus comes in verse 13, where we see the sovereignty of the Lord. The sovereignty of the Lord. It's only after His night of prayer that Jesus begins to select His apostles So the humility is not finished, is it? Not only does Jesus pray in response to opposition, He also prays before choosing the twelve. You see, it's a living illustration of what Jesus would say in John chapter 8. I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Jesus is not a self-sufficient Savior. (laughs) He doesn't depend upon Himself, in other words. He depends upon God. So we can't say this enough, and we can't rejoice in this enough, since our salvation rests upon this truth. The Lord Jesus is humble. He depends on God. He depends upon the Father, even when He's appointing His his own apostles. But what should get our attention as we go to verse 13 is the absolute sovereignty of Jesus Christ. And I do mean absolute sovereignty. Look again at the text and listen to how clearly... Jesus drives this encounter, verse 13. And when day came, Jesus called His disciples and He chose from them twelve whom He named apostles. Now before we jump to the apostles, notice that Jesus does have a number of disciples following Him at this point. This is encouraging to me, friends. Remember, the religious leaders want to kill Jesus and there's this growing tide of opposition against Jesus' ministry and yet there's a number of people who are still following Him. There are a number of disciples who are counting the cost and following Jesus on the road of discipleship. That's a needed reminder for us, friends. Jesus endured opposition, and the opposition didn't derail His ministry. So it's a small thing in verse 13, but it's a reminder that the gates of hell will not prevail against the Lord Jesus' church. Even when the religious leaders want to kill Him, Jesus' word still finds fruitful soil for people to believe. But it is the sovereignty of Jesus that we should note in verse 13. From this group of disciples, Jesus chooses twelve whom He names apostles. Notice that word choose, friends. It's a term of authority. It's a term of of will. It's a term of sovereignty, even. It's Jesus who initiates this appointment. And it's Jesus' word that calls out the twelve apostles. You see, the twelve apostles are not self-made ministers who just happened to be insightful enough to see the truth about Jesus and then offer up their lives in service to Him. That's not the case at all. The apostles exist entirely because Jesus chose them, not the other way around. The apostles are appointed because Jesus' Word reached and called them and made them His representatives. And friends, that takes us back to what we noted at the outset of the sermon. Apostleship is an expression of Jesus' sovereign authority, not man's. 
To understand the ministry of the twelve, you have to understand this point. The apostles did not make themselves. And they did not serve for themselves. They were appointed by Jesus. And the entire point of their apostolic office was directed to the Lord Jesus. The apostles were called to preserve and pass on the testimony of Jesus' life and ministry. In other words, the apostles were servants of Christ for the sake of the church. For the sake of the Gospel. Again, this is foundational. The apostles were not little kings. They weren't overlords. They weren't intended to take some authority and pass it down from one generation to the next. The apostles were sovereignly chosen by Jesus for the work of preserving and passing on the Gospel. They're the first link, humanly speaking, in that faith once for all delivered to the saints. And it happens because Jesus appointed them because He chose them and called them to Himself. Before we go deeper with the apostles, which we're going to do in just a second, I want to pause here and just draw out for you what I hope is an encouraging takeaway from, from this moment. Jesus sovereignly rules here by His Word in verse 13. And that should remind us that Jesus' sovereignty is always exercised for the good of His church. I I, I think this is something that we should be reminded of today. Jesus' sovereignty is always exercised for the good of His church. Sovereignty is a powerful word. It gets people's attention and it communicates power. To be sovereign is to have no rivals. (laughs) So sovereignty is a big powerful truth. And yet, how is the Lord Jesus exercising His sovereignty here? For the good of His church. For the well-being of His His people. He's He's not using His absolute authority for His own sake, in other words, but for the sake of His own, His own people. Do you see see it, friends? With with sovereignty, Jesus appoints these men who will then proclaim and pass down the Gospel to the church, even to you and me. In, In a real sense, we're here today believing the Gospel because Jesus sovereignly called these men and instilled them with His authority to preserve and pass down the Gospel to today. Right? It's it's absolute sovereignty on Jesus' part for whose good ours for our good for the good of the church you see it's all for the church's sake and that's what I want to stress this morning as we reflect on verse 13 we are a church that rejoices in the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ make no mistake about it we love to sing and declare and worship in the fact that Jesus makes his people by his own will the choosing of the apostles friend is a little parable of how all Christians become believers because Jesus's word reaches in and calls them to himself That's the kind of church that we are. We rejoice in this truth. It's good news that Jesus has sovereign authority to call people to His own name. But I also pray that we're a church that understands the pastoral heart Jesus displays in exercising that sovereignty. Jesus has unlimited power. He has unlimited authority. And yet, He always uses that power for the good of His people. He always uses it for the sake of His church. That's the kind of king Jesus came to be. He's a shepherd king, really. A king who lays down His life and uses His authority to call His sheep, to protect them, to care for them, even to provide for them, provide for their life, 
down to the very end of the age. So I hope you're encouraged by this today. In verse 13, it's not just Jesus calling out 12 men to do a job. It's Jesus caring for you if you're a believer. Preserving the truth for your sake and for mine. That's the kind of sovereign Lord that He is. What a merciful and compassionate Lord Jesus Christ is to His church. The gates of hell will not prevail because our King uses His authority to preserve the truth and then to preserve us in the truth. That's good news. That's good news for us. So that's the second truth, the sovereignty of the Lord. Let's look at the third truth in this passage which brings us to the apostles in verses 14 to 16. The third truth is the messengers of the Lord. We've seen the humility, the sovereignty. Let's note here for just a few minutes the messengers of the Lord. Beginning in verse 14, Luke records the names of the twelve apostles. This is one of the four New Testament lists of the apostles. Every list is built around three groups of four. Every list begins with Peter. And every list ends with Judas, except the list in Acts 1, because Judas is already dead. Now, there's a lot that you could say about the apostles as a group. And there's considerable detail that you could draw out about some of the individual apostles. It's a really fascinating study. For example, it is staggering to consider that Peter, who denied the Lord, would become something of the spokesman for the apostles, appearing first in every single list. He denied Jesus. And yet he's at the head of the apostolic list. Friends, that's some powerful hope for any Christian who thinks that he's fallen and is beyond use to the Lord Jesus. Peter would tell you otherwise. It's also striking that there's Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot, in the same list. Tax collectors and zealots didn't like each other. Like at all. In fact, zealots would sometimes try to kill tax collectors. They wanted to overthrow the Roman Empire. And yet, here in the same list, you have a tax collector and you have a zealot, and they're both apostles. Jesus brings enemies together. Which, of course, should remind us that the gospel reconciles sinners to God and it reconciles sinners to one another. So the church should be a place where enemies become brothers and sisters in the Lord. That's a helpful reflection, I think, about the apostles. So there's a lot that we could, there's a lot of detail we could draw out about these 12 men. It's a, it's a fascinating exercise. But for the sake of time, I just I want to draw your attention to two words that perhaps capture what we might call the paradox of the apostles. Two words. The apostles were unique and the apostles were ordinary. Unique and ordinary. Something of a paradox with these 12 men. Consider, first of all, that the apostles were unique. To be an apostle, you had to be an eyewitness of Jesus' earthly ministry, specifically His death and resurrection. Later, Paul would be called an apostle, but when you read Paul's own testimony, he says that he is an apostle like one untimely born. He's out of place, in other words. By and large, you had to be an eyewitness of Jesus' ministry. And from this, we should note, friends, just very simply and plainly, that the office of apostle has not continued in the life of the church today. There are no apostles today. The apostles served a unique purpose during the first generation of the church's life. This is why we read Ephesians 2. This is why Natalie read Ephesians 2, 11-22 for us earlier. Because the apostles and the prophets 
serve as the foundation for the church with Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. There's nothing else to add to a foundation, right? So there are no more apostles today. The apostles were uniquely necessary during the founding days of the church's life. This makes sense. The New Testament is still being written. So we need authoritative witnesses to the truth, and that's how the twelve apostles functioned. But when the New Testament writings are finished, the office of apostle is no longer necessary. That means there's no apostles today. Their purpose has been fulfilled. You also see the apostles' uniqueness in their number. Jesus chooses twelve apostles, which you well know is a significant number in the Bible. Not every number in the Bible is significant, but some numbers are. This is one of the ones that is. There were 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, and by selecting 12 apostles, Jesus is very clearly telling us that He's building a new people of God called the church. Understand, this is a massive claim on Jesus' part. As the faithful Son of God, we've already seen this in Luke's Gospel, as the faithful Son of God, Jesus is the true Israel. He's the promised seed of Abraham. He's the one who fulfills the old covenant. And now in that role of founding a new covenant, Jesus is bringing together a new people for God. A new covenant people who are defined not by ethnicity, but by the work of the Holy Spirit. Where do you find God's people today? You find them where the Holy Spirit dwells. This is why in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost, who is at the forefront of that, of that uh, earthly ministry? The apostles. right? The apostles. Peter specifically preaching. The apostles' role is foundational, you see. It, it, it's foundational in Jesus' work of building this new covenant people for God. So when you put all this together, you can see very clearly, I hope, that the apostles were unique in redemptive history. They were eyewitnesses to Jesus' ministry. They were foundational in the establishment of the church. And even their number tells us something of the significance of what Jesus is doing. The work of building a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. So the apostles are unique. At the same time though, when you look at the list in Luke chapter 6, you should also notice that the apostles are rather ordinary. They're rather ordinary. I mean, think about it. Here we have a group that's made up of fishermen, a tax collector, a zealot, and then a bunch of guys we don't really know much about. What was Thaddeus doing before he became an apostle? Nobody knows. What happened to him after Jesus' ascension? Don't know. We just don't know a bunch about him. These were not attention-grabbing power brokers of Jesus' day. These were not the religious elite. These were not the culturally sophisticated. These were everyday men. These were everyday guys. Before the Lord's call, you wouldn't have picked these men out as key leaders in your movement to change the world. In fact, apart from Jesus' choice, there is nothing to set these men apart. Apart from Jesus' choice, we don't know who Simon Peter is. These are just ordinary, everyday guys. And that, brothers and sisters, is actually very important for us to embrace. What sets the twelve apart is the sovereign grace of Christ. What sets the twelve apart is the sovereign call of Christ. You see, it's actually an expression of the earth-shattering good news of the kingdom of God. It's not the wise or the powerful who have access to God's kingdom. It's the lowly. It's the ordinary. It's the everyday. It's the humble that God delights to call to Himself. Not because the humble are inherently better than other people, but because the humble so clearly show that all glory belongs to God. 
In other words, friends, the ordinary nature of the apostles should remind us that service to Christ is not based on our status or on our natural abilities. I'm going to say that again because some of us may need to be reminded of that. Service to Christ is not based on your earthly status or on your own natural abilities. It rests on the call and grace of the Lord Jesus. So if you're a Christian today, I'm going to try to make a jump here from the apostles as called and gifted to do a task to you and me as called and gifted to do a task. Okay, that's, what I'm, that's the bridge I'm trying to build here. If you're a Christian today, then the Lord Jesus has called you to Himself and that's why you're a Christian. Because of Jesus' call on you. And at the same time, if you are a Christian, Jesus has not only called you, He has gifted you with what you need to be His servant in the world. Yes, you're not going to be an apostle. There were only a handful of them. You're not an apostle, but every disciple is sent out by Christ. That's what the word apostle comes from. Sent out, right? Every disciple, every believer is sent out by Christ to bear witness to the good news. Every disciple is sent out by the Lord Jesus to be His light in a dark and dying world. And that includes you and me. So, for Christians here this morning, I would encourage you to ask the Lord to open your eyes to the ministry He's already calling you to do. To be a disciple is to be called and gifted to serve the Master. To be a disciple is to be commissioned and sent out with the Master's work. So, if you're a Christian today, then Jesus has work for you to do. Have you asked Him where that work is? And how you should go about doing it? Listen, friends, one of the temptations of Christianity in our age is that we can get so, so turned in, so turned in on my faith and my walk that we can forget that we're called to walk in faith in order to see others walk in faith, right? Have you asked the Lord Jesus where that work is that He wants you to do and how you should go about doing it? Have you asked Him to show you what disciple-making opportunities He's put in your path? Every Christian is called to be a disciple-maker. And every Christian has been gifted to do that work. That's our work, brothers and sisters. And it starts in our church. It starts in our own homes. If the Lord's given you children, there's your primary field right there. It starts in our church. It starts in our own homes. It starts in our workplaces. You may think that you're just an ordinary Christian that's part of an ordinary church in an ordinary town, and the apostles would say to you, that's right, and it's ordinary people whom God uses. So instead of waiting on the sidelines for what we feel like might be the significant point of ministry when we can jump in, we need to recognize that the ordinary day is where the Lord wants us to jump in. Right now, right here, with one another with our own homes, and with our own workplaces. So instead of thinking that the ministry of the Gospel is for all those other Christians, let's embrace the truth that the ministry is our work to do together. And then by faith, let's serve together because on one level, every Christian is a messenger of the Lord. Right? Every Christian is called and commissioned to be the Lord's messenger.
Well, as we, as we get ready to close here, I hope, I hope you've seen how the apostles are significant because of their connection to the Lord Jesus. That's what I wanted you to pick up today. They're Jesus' messengers called and sent out by His sovereign will to preserve and pro- proclaim the gospel in that foundational era of the early church. That's my summary of the apostles. Here at the conclusion of our sermon, though, I want to, I want to end by helping us see the connection between the apostles and us. Right? We spent most of our time connecting the apostles to Jesus. What about the apostles and us? If the, if the apostles are so significant, then what is their tie to us, Christians who live some 2,000 years later? Well, the answer, friends, is the Scriptures. The answer is the Word of God. The way we stand in line with the apostles is by standing firm on the inspired Word of God. The apostles were the eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry, and their mission was to proclaim what they had seen. And that proclamation has been recorded for us in the New Testament. To read the New Testament, then, is to listen to the apostolic testimony about about Jesus Christ. Whether it's the Gospels or Paul's letters, whether it's 1 Peter or 1 John, the New Testament is Christ's authoritative word to His church handed down to us through Christ's apostles. The connection with the twelve to us is in the Bible. We listen to the Bible. Let me tell you why this matters. I'll just give you one example of why this matters. You'll sometimes hear people say that they want to be red-letter Christians. Have you, got, have you heard that phrase? People who say they want to be red-letter Christians? And the idea is that they want to be a Christian who pays attention only to the words of Jesus printed in red in the New Testament? That might sound pretty devout, but it's, it's honestly rather foolish. There's no distinction between the words of Jesus in the Gospels and the words of His apostles in the epistles. There's no difference. Every word in the New Testament is the authoritative word of Christ. Every word. And that's because the apostles are the Lord Jesus' authorized messengers. So we as the church today honor the authority of Christ by submitting to His Word which has come to us through the ministry of the Lord's apostles. So let's be done with silly distinctions between Jesus and Paul as if they're saying different things. Look, this this matters, friends. All of the debates in our culture about uh, human sexuality are being driven by some folks on the religious side who are trying to make a difference between Jesus and Paul as if there were one. There's not. There's not red-letter Christians. There's just Christians who believe the Bible. Luke 6 and Romans 6. All of it. The way we honor the apostles and honor the Lord Jesus is by holding to the Scriptures all of them. So let's just be done. Better, let me say it differently. Let's not be taken captive by silly distinctions between Jesus and Paul as if they were two different things. They're not. Peter and Paul and John speak with, authority to, speak with authority to us because they deliver to us the Word of our Lord, Jesus Christ. And so, friends, I'm going to end with the exhortation that I give so often. And it's the one that I'm going to keep giving. I'm more convinced of this than ever for the church's life and ministry. This is the exhortation that I want to close with. Give yourself to the life-giving task of knowing the Word of God. Feed on the Scriptures. And as you do, 
Remember that you are not reading the words of self-appointed men who held some religious office. You are reading the Word of God, the Word of Christ, recorded and preserved for us by the prophets and the apostles. That Word is the lifeblood of the church. That Word is the only thing that the elders in this church have to give you. We've got nothing else to give you except the Word of God. That Word is the lifeblood of the church. And brothers and sisters, it's the lifeblood for you and me. So take up God's Word and read and receive in the Scriptures the life-giving authority of Jesus Christ handed down to us through His approved and authorized messengers. Take up and read. Amen. And let's pray. Father, we do ask that You would please help us to build our lives upon the Word of God As we read the list of the 12 apostles here, we should be gripped anew, Lord, with the need to know the authority of Christ, to know the Word of Christ. And we should see the provision You've made for us to know that Word and handing it down to us through the ministry of the apostles here in the Scriptures. God, make us us a Bible-saturated people. Not so we can show how much we know, but so that we can be faithful to the work You've called us to do. Father, even now, I I am asking You, I am pleading with You to work in our church by Your Spirit, through Your Word, so that every member of Midtown Baptist would be engaged and devoted and committed to the work of making disciples, both here in our own church, in our own homes, in our neighborhoods, and in our workplaces. Father, remind us that there are no sideline Christians in the work of Jesus' church. Remind us, God, that You've called and gifted us for the work here at hand. Lord, and remind us most of all that to devote our lives to making Christ known is the best way to live. Help us, God. Help us, we ask. Help us not to waste our lives. Help us, Father, not to waste the ministry of our church. Lord, move in us now, we ask. Please help us. Help us, God, to be engaged in the work You've called us to do, remembering, Lord, that You have preserved this faith once for all delivered to the saints, and You've made us Your own through the call of Christ. We pray in His name. Amen.